Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's Thursday, February 22nd, and your Ben Jarofsky show starts now. On the show today, Ben talks the top stories in news and politics with one of his favorites, Miles Complesson. The Ben Jarofsky Show, a presentation of the Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, you want to find out what the best things in Chicago are, you should probably head to chicagoreader.com. There's so much there you're not going to regret it. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Tiff City Thursday, and here's why. Miles Conflossen has joined us. He's standing by. Uh, Ace editor reporter for in these times we have so much to talk about but folks my I was telling Miles before one of the mic my brain is like blowing up there's so much <laughs> sometimes I, I I just can't even control it there's just so much feed coming into my brain that is causing me to like rant and rail and I really do try to control myself you know and focus and be uh, but it's a combination of the mainstream media dealing with Brandon Johnson standing up the second times editorial board and the mainstream media not recognizing its own biases, never recognizing its own biases, like in total freaking denial about its own biases. Okay. That, that hit stimulates me. Then Brandon Johnson unveils his TIFF proposal, which doesn't even get at the heart of what he's doing for the good. It's like he's sheltering the city from the benefits of his TIFF proposal. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? And then finally, the topper, the the cherry on the Sunday. Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the White Sox, goes down to Springfield with his paw out looking for money to build a White Sox stadium that up until like what I don't know, three months ago, nobody in the city Chicago knew we needed because the current White Sox stadium is only 30 years old and we still haven't paid off the obligations on it. And the biggest problems the White Sox have is not a stadium, it's one of the worst teams in the league. And this is where there's a split in Chicago. So most of the news uh, on something like a, a handout, a plea from a Reinsdorf type uh, is being written uh, and shepherded to the public by people who don't understand sports, don't follow sports, don't care about sports. Uh, and to a large degree, it's digested by people who don't follow sports, don't care about sports. And they are unaware of how bad the White Sox are. Monumentally bad. I could go on and on about this. I'm a long-time, long-suffering White Sox fan, okay? But I'm not. I'm going to spare you that. You don't need to hear it. Just trust me. They are wretched, okay? Uh, and so they cooked up, though. 
to their credit, I got to be, they cooked up this scheme to get public financing for a stadium again, don't need. And by and large, the mainstream media is treating it like it's a real thing. Like this is a need that Chicago faces. This is a possible benefit for the city. No, it's, there's a vacant chunk of land on the Chicago river, just South of Roosevelt road. Your life will go on if that remains vacant or not. That is not your problem. Chicago, you have far more pressing infrastructure needs than filling up that vacant piece of land, which has been vacant since miles has been born. That it's this vacant land has been there. No problems to you city of Chicago. Your life goes on. There's a chunk of vacant land along the Chicago river, just South of Roosevelt road. So what, you know what infrastructure needs you have? Your streets are crumbling. Your bridges are crumbling. Your sidewalks are crumbling. Your schools need repairs. That's infrastructure need. But somehow or other, the mainstream media is like shoving this down your throat. Well, the TIF money that Jerry Reinstorf wants is not for the stadium. It's for the infrastructure. That they, and so the public goes like, oh, well, it's infrastructure, Ben. How can you be against it? How about fixing 63rd Street or 67th Street or 79th Street? Or even Damon on the north side. It's up, up, got to go around the potholes again. It's that time of year. I told you I was going to go nuts. So I'm going to calm down and say this. This morning, I had to go to the dentist. And as such, I was listening, was listening to sports radio, as I do many times. And let me tell you this. If you want to know, how, what, what's the word I want? Insincere? disingenuous this whole white Sox stadium deal is listen to sports radio put away the front page of your newspaper don't listen to wbez don't listen don't follow the mainstream media go listen to what the guys in the sports radio are saying because they know how full of it the owners are you get in my humble opinion let's see what miles has to say about this far more what accurate coverage of what our owners are up to on the sports sections of the paper and on the sports uh, radio shows than you will in the mainstream. Because they take act like this is a legit request as opposed to an attempt to fool you, the public, into thinking there's a compelling citywide need to take a chunk of vacant land on the banks of the Chicago River just south of Roosevelt Road and outfit it into the 78 with a new home for the White Sox because that's what the city of Chicago needs. You don't need a city of Chicago. You got to eat your vegetables before you eat your dessert. All right, Miles. I apologize for that rant and rave. I could not help myself. I'm overwhelmed. I could rant and rave about so many other things, but I'm going to bring you on the show and you're going to have a calming effect on me as you do so often because you're so logical and so rational and so even keeled. So welcome back, Miles Conflassen from In These Times, and I will now bring it down a notch. Welcome. Thank you. Very glad to be here. And, uh, you know, it's always good to uh, get riled up with some passion when it comes to how our public dollars are being spent. And I know that's been a cause to love of your career, so uh, understandable. 40 years trying to get Chicagoans to understand how the TIP program works, Miles. And I could see, I mean, spectacular failure i have flopped the cluelessness of chicago as to how the tiff program works is just will i'll be an old man in my dotage going they never got it they never understood 
Well, right. maybe, you know, maybe the city will start actually letting these districts expire, as is like in the mayor's current plan for uh, this development program. And we might have a few less of these TIF districts, although, as you said, that's the TIFs are going to be very um, instrumental to whatever plan is being cooked up by the Reinsdorfs to get this uh, stadium built in the South Loop. Oh, yeah. While uh, the mayor is talking about letting TIF districts expire uh, in order to finance affordable housing program, uh, which is just like blowing the minds of observers who've never written about TIS before. While he's doing that, uh, <laughs> Jerry Reinsdorf and the developers are have their eye on a $1.2 billion TIF uh, subsidy for the 78. So it's like, if I were really cynical, Miles, I'd say they're proposing one thing to divert our attention from something else, but I am not cynical, Miles. Okay, I just want to by the way, Miles, are you? Uh, do you share my attitude that the best coverage of a sports stadium is generally on the sports side of things as opposed to the news side, or do you think I'm being unfair to news reporters? Well, I think that uh, you know sports writers and analysts and pundits are you know like some of the most intense and passionate people when it comes to those topics. They're like you know junkies when it comes to consuming information, and so. Um, I think they and they and they're very passionate. So, yeah, I think that especially on those particular topics, um, they, you know, have a little bit more background. And I think that this is like, you know, the the White Sox are they've been a franchise in disarray for a, a while now. And this seems like a last ditch effort. And this is what, you know, Reinsdorf does. Right. This is he did this in the 80s when he threatened to move the team to Tampa Bay. And now, you know, he just did this interview with Cranes where he was saying, you know, I'm not going to be around forever. You know, he's like 88 now. And he's like, Michael's going to take over his son. And he says, you know, they're going to be trying to move to Nashville. You know, it's going to make more sense for the ownership group of the team to explore their options. And it's just, once again, he's trying to like, you know, pull one over to get the city to agree to public money saying, "Uh Oh, we might just move the team. You know, it's going to make, I don't understand how it could possibly be more financially advantageous to be in a tiny media market like Nashville versus um, in Chicago. But that's the kind of, you know, depths they're going to to try to uh, wrangle more money out of uh, the taxpayers of Chicago. And like you said, I mean, there's <laughs> the guaranteed rate field, as we call it. It's new. It's like, you know, we just we just went through this a few decades ago. It's kind of yeah. absurd to now be trying to, you know, especially when it's only what, like a hundred some games a year, like, and then what are they going to do the rest of the time? Unless there's some plan for like other usage of the the stadium. I just don't see how it would make sense, you know? Well, there's 81 games in a baseball season, uh, home games. So there's 81 games uh, a year. And uh, one more time, I don't. Some people may call it that. I don't call it. I call it Sox Park because every time uh, the White Sox sell the ownership rights or the up to their stadium, I don't feel compelled to have to uh, go along with it. And like I'm still struggling with the United Center. Part of me calls that Chicago Stadium. Yeah, I've got a lot of issues here, Miles. Uh, and uh, Sears Tower. I still call it the Sears. I don't even know why I call it the Sears Tower. That big thing, I should call it. Just the big, big building. No one pays you or me, Miles. Like, you know, I willing to wear this, willingly wear this Bulls hat, promoting the Bulls incessantly. But, you know, I do that out of love for Norm Van Leer and Michael Jeffrey Jordan and all the great Bulls from the past. Uh, I don't do this because... I'm an accomplice in the Bulls' empire. All right. Um, 
let's move away from a conversation uh, about a stadium for the moment and talk national issues. I immediately reached out to you I was about a week ago when I saw this story. It could have been in, in these times where I saw the story. I can't remember where I first story, but the latest tactic by corporate America to destroy the union movement. Uh, and folks, they're not playing. This is a serious maneuver uh, by, I think, Amazon, Trader Trader Joe's. Come on, Trader Joe's. What do you care if your staff is unionized? And I can't remember which other uh, powerful entities are uh, launching this fight, but it's to try to outlaw the National Labor Relations Board. And I said, I got to bring Miles on and explain to people uh, what this situation is. Uh, so, Miles, why don't we just start by explaining what the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, is, uh, and then why it's such a threat uh, to the Amazons of the world who want to keep prevent their employees from uh, forming a union. Right. The NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, is really like the foundation of labor law in the United States. Um, and it's the um, agency that was created to carry out the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, which people probably know was um, a foundation stone of the New Deal that was, um, you know, put in place under FDR in the 1930s. Um, and they have a prosecutorial arm that is in charge of adjudicating, you know, uh, allegations of unfair labor practices. Um, and that's largely where they deal with um, with businesses and corporations is to enforce workers' rights. Um, they also oversee union elections. Um, you know, that's where you have to submit, you know, union election results to, to have it approved as to the NLRB. Um, they communicate to workers about working conditions. Throughout its history, there have been various, you know, forms of the NLRB. It's pretty much always been desperately underfunded, um, which it definitely is right now. Um, and there's very few enforcement mechanisms for, you know, what is in the NLRA. Right now, the general counsel of the NLRB is Jennifer Abruzzo under Biden, and she's been particularly um, forward-thinking in terms of how she's approached the agency and done a lot to try to, like, speed up union elections and to really beef up workers' rights and has been one of the most kind of progressive leaders of the agency we've seen in quite some time. Um, but that is all part of the reason that corporate America is putting all of its targets onto this agency to try to um, declaw it of all of its power and influence. And right now, as you said, is taking the completely shocking uh, legal strategy, which is cooked up in all these libertarian think tanks. You know, the Federalist Society and stuff is, you know, what's behind all of these um, legal efforts, but it's to say that the NLRB itself is unconstitutional. And you're right that um, both Amazon and Trader Joe's have pushed this argument, as has SpaceX, which is Elon Musk's company. Of course, the um, great techno god himself, as he calls himself, Elon Musk, is uh, part of this effort to um, to take out the NLRB. And it's absurd. I mean, the whole legal argument is just like that it violates separation of powers. And it all comes down to how the NLRB is able to reinstate workers who have been unfairly fired um, as a result of their union organizing. And so that's what we frequently see. You know, companies do this all the time when they have workers that are at the 
forefront of union campaigns, they will try to take them out so that they no longer are, you know, organizing their shops anymore. And they'll make up BS charges against them and fire them in a retaliatory way. And it usually takes years to legally resolve those conflicts. And many times it is proven that they have been unfairly fired. But what the NLRB does is then in the meantime, it can reinstate those workers and give them back pay. Um, and that's taken place in all across all of these companies, you know, in Amazon, that was the case at Staten Island, the one, you know, Amazon shop um, that got organized a couple years back that JFK shop where the Amazon labor union uh, organized. Um, SpaceX has had a number of efforts to, to organize and you know, Elon's response was just to fire people and they claimed it was unfair. And certainly Trader Joe's, you know, Trader Joe's, there's a TJU is the name of the union, another independent union, uh, Trader Joe's union. And they've had a number of employees fired. And in fact, I think it was in New York, there were, a UFCW was about to go public with a campaign to organize one of their stores. Uh, the company found out about it and they just closed the whole store right before they could even um, get the union could even announce and get off the ground. So these are clearly efforts to um, stop organizing in its tracks. And what the companies are arguing now in, in, in court through these federal filings, are they're saying that this violates the separation of powers because they don't have due process. You know, they're being denied due process because the, the, the NLRB, the board, is deciding to reinstate these workers when the company should have the ability to decide it itself. It's a completely specious argument, but now they're able to make these kind of claims because of how right-wing the Supreme Court is. And in fact, Starbucks has a case that the Supreme Court actually heard, is hearing arguments in that is going after this exact right of, of the NLRB to even carry this function out to reinstate um, fired workers for their union organizing. And judging by the anti-union rulings of this court, uh, the Supreme Court so far, it's very likely that they'll win. And that'll have a completely devastating effect on the labor movement as a whole. But I think we should also kind of put this in the context of this larger effort that's being carried out by the right wing in the U.S. right now to completely um, decimate the regulatory state as it exists across the board, because that is really, they're trying to overturn the New Deal, and they've been trying to do this for decades, but um, they have not had the ability to kind of put these things into legal effect. They'll do it on small scales. You know, they'll take, they'll go after the defund agencies and local governments that they're overseeing. You know, the Republicans are always trying to find ways to kneecap federal agencies or state or local agencies. But now they're finding ways to just remove them of their power. And we saw this in the EPA ruling that the Supreme Court put forward last year. We're seeing it now where they're going after, um, you know, these local fisheries are trying to basically like overturn this Chevron decision, which is the one that said that uh, agencies can make their own rules and can enforce them, which gives them in some independent power. Um, now what these companies are arguing is that Congress should be the ones that actually agree on every regulation. And that would just completely throw our whole regulatory regime uh, in disarray and make it so that we can't enforce any you know, rules and regulations, whether it comes to like antitrust or, 
you know, climate measures or any of the things that we rely on as part of our, you know, having a regulatory state in, in the U.S. And so this is another part of that effort is going after um, the right of the NLRB and, um, and unions themselves to have some say over how elections are done. And we already have a pretty piecemeal labor law regime in the U.S. as it exists. That's why people are fighting for things like the PRO Act, which would put more money into union organizing for one, but also increase penalties on companies for unfair labor practices. Because we know in, I think it's like 40% of union elections, companies engage in some form of unfair labor practices because they'll stop at any lengths to stop workers from organizing all kinds of things, captive audience meetings, these kinds of retaliatory firings, all kinds of stuff. They're doing this because they don't want to see unions because they know unions are powerful, right? They're scared of the fact that organized working people can exercise collective power. And that's how they can wring some concessions and kind of even the playing field and ultimately threaten the profits of the owners of these businesses because they'd have to redistribute them into the working class. And so that's ultimately, it's a campaign that comes out of fear um, but it's it's novel and it's pretty scary because we haven't really seen this before. And if they're successful, I mean, th this, the thing is, the Supreme Court already ruled in 1937 that the NLRB is constitutional. So they would have to completely overturn like decades of jurisprudence if the if this is to be effective. But that said, we have an extreme right wing court right now that was put in place largely by by Trump by, and, and, and other Republicans. And this is all they're in agreement that this is their goal is to decimate the labor movement. And so this is their their latest attempt. Uh, and by the way, these the same Supremes uh, overturn Roe. So they're not hesitant uh, to overturn all long established uh, rulings, decisions. All right. Let me deal with a sort of the um, a couple things that you, you sort of mentioned in passing. And so you pointed out, uh, and I should have, I was neglectful in not saying, yeah, yeah Elon Musk has also uh, raised this argument. And Elon Musk has been very outspoken in his oppositions to unions. And generally, when he, uh, when he raises the issue, uh, the way he depicts it, uh, and it's picked up upon by many of his supporters, is that there are great men, great entrepreneurs like himself, okay? And then there are bureaucrats, uh, civil servants, uh, deep state people uh, who are undermining great men. And so that is the rhetoric uh, that the Elon Musks of the world put out. And to a larger degree, it's sort of seconded, uh, to some degree, it's seconded by uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon and whoever's running Starbucks these days. Uh, it, like the, it, our economy is built on the acts of great men or women, but mostly men. Uh, and we stifle creativity when we allow bureaucrats to have any kind of control over uh, these great men. Uh, what's your response to uh, that rhetoric that's put out by Musk and his uh, allies? Well, it's just not true. And I mean, all of this is, you know, look at any of these, you know, if you're looking at technological breakthroughs, they're largely happen because of public funded research, you know, R&D that comes from, you know, the mass public. And there would be no like Tesla cars unless there were people making them, you know, unless there was human labor um, that was going into that. So this idea that, you know, it's like thought leaders or somehow like godheads of our society is just some like Ann Randian uh, 
you know, cockamamie that doesn't really make any sense when you when you look at how societal development happens and technological advances. They're group efforts, they're collective efforts, um, and I think that that's largely missed. And I think we should just say that the other thing I didn't mention is that this is, as you know, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, know this. The reason that um, there's so much um, hatred being uh, you know, shown to the labor movement is because it's winning right now. And because we've seen, you know, this last year, we saw major high profile victories at the, you know, the UAW strike against the big three automakers, the Teamsters contract at UPS, which was completely historic, you know, the actors um, and writers out in Hollywood, of course, one Kaiser Permanente um, strikers unite here has had ma- ma- major victories last year, saw over half a million workers go out, on strike and you and people like this stuff you know they like seeing that it's like a you know david goliath struggle and when working people are winning against corporate actors like people are hype about it and so unions are at their highest popularity rate um since the 60s right now um and over you know half of people that are not in unions now say they want to be and that's millions of new workers that could be organized the problem is that it's really hard to get a union even. And once you get a union, it's really hard to win a first contract as we're seeing, you know, there's almost now 400 Starbucks stores that have been organized, including just this past this week, we saw the largest single day filing um, in the company's history where it was, I think it was 20 some stores across 14 States um, all uh, filed for election, the uh, Starbucks stores. And so um, there, you know, there's clearly, uh, movement where people want to be organized, but there hasn't been a single contract yet. Um, and the reason at a, a Starbucks store, and that's because they're just delaying and they're willing to pay fines and put up with whatever crap that the NLRB is throwing at them if they don't have to sign into, you know, a permanent agreement with their workforce. So they want to retain the ability to fire employees at will and, you know, pay them whatever the hell they want. And that's like, that's how they're going about this is just delay, delay, delay. Same thing at that Amazon warehouse. And then in the meantime, throw all these ridiculous legal arguments out in order to, you know, muck up the system. One of the things I'll just point out that they did in addition to the, you know, both going to the Supreme court over Starbucks and filing and saying the NLRB is unconstitutional. They've both Starbucks and um, Trader Joe's and medieval times, actually another place that's recently been unionized have, uh, tried to sue their, the respective unions over, uh, copyright infringement for copying their trademark, because you've probably seen some of these unions use like versions of the company's logo in their own like union merch and how they advertise those cases of all are all frivolous and have been thrown out, but that's just an example of how they're trying to, you know, use legal mechanisms and I identify that with a little bit myself because I have some experience with that. Back in the um, back in the day, I was one of the co-founders of uh, the Occupied Chicago Tribune, which some people may remember. You know, during the Occupy movement, there were all these kind of papers that came out parodying the mainstream uh, media that would you know tell stories of from the ninety nine percent perspective, you know, like working class focused stuff. And we edited and put out a number of publications and the Tribune sued us 
over copyright infringement. And uh, Mike Miner uh, covered it for the reader. And, you know, that case went all the way up to the World Intellectual Property Organization Court in Geneva, Switzerland. And they ultimately ruled against the Tribune and with us, you know, and throughout the suit because it was completely ridiculous. And so these companies will like stop at nothing to try to punish anybody they see as like an easy mark for an infringement and it's all absurd so i'm glad to see that you know much like with our case the uh when it comes to these nascent union campaigns that they're being allowed to use the company's logos as well i forgot that case that you just alluded to i i completely forgot it was about 2011 i want to say uh when the occupy movement was uh was strong i forgot that uh, you took. I didn't realize it went all the way up to uh, wow the world world courts. It was outside the the American judicial system, uh, and you prevailed. Did you get any money off of that? Did you like? No, <laughs> no but I no, but I did not have to pay up. I think it was in it was in 2012, I believe. But yeah, the uh, the People's Law Office. Shout out to the People's Law Office. They represented us uh, pro bono, and we had lawyers that fought against them every step of the way. It was it was you know Old it was. Taylor? My guy Flint Taylor represent you from People's No, Law? although I do know Flint. Um, no, we had we had different uh, representation, okay. but um, but they were great, and oh. and we won. We beat the the, the Tribune. Tribune man. Uh, that's funny. I I mean a tangent with a tangent. Uh, my world comes together. I remember the Occupy movement. They invited me to come speak. I don't know if you were there. Uh, the Occupy uh, LaSalle Street. And they asked me to come speak about TIFFs, which is one of the funniest things I ever, I remember to this day going there. It was a, like October, I want to say. It was a chilly autumn night. Uh, and I was giving, <laughs> oh my God, I was giving a, a mini uh, class on TIFFs to uh, uh, all these activists who are even probably none of them own property, much less paid a property tax. So it was a little challenging thing to do, but whatever. All right. Now, let me, deal, let me ask you to uh, confront this, this issue. So one of the leaders, as you pointed out, of this anti-NLRB uh, movement is Elon Musk. And he is one of the leaders uh, of the anti-union movement in general, along with uh, Jeff Bezos. He's kind of a powerful attitude uh, opposing unions, really kind of bizarre. Uh, and, um, uh, and so I need to know, help me out this, how does, so as you pointed out, Elon Musk feels free. Uh, to punish somebody who wants to form a union at his workshop. He'll fire them if necessary, okay? So how does that mesh, help me out here, um, with his proclamation uh, that a free society where people are free to speak their minds is most beneficial? And that's what I want. That's what he wants to do with Twitter. Uh, he wants to have an open, free exchange of ideas, all right? Because that unleashes all the good in a society where people are free in the marketplace of ideas. So that libertarian attitude that folks should be free to express themselves, how does that mesh with a guy who fires someone for expressing themselves? I'm seeing a very, a big inconsistency here between a proclaimed love for freedom and like a totalitarian reflex, which is the exact opposite of a love for freedom. Help me understand this, Miles. Go ahead. Well, the fact is that workplaces are tyrannical and the boss rules and you don't really have freedom. You certainly don't have democracy. And that ultimately is Elon Musk's ideal vision of the kind of society he wants is one where he can control everything. 
and he doesn't have any um, boundaries he has to exist in. And, you know, and you see this in all of his, you know, posts that are, he called, you know, openly says he's like doing edgelord behavior where he's just like pushing boundaries and saying absurd things and offensive things. And he thinks it's all so that he can, that's his version of free speech. It's free speech for me, not for thee, because it's, when it comes to enforcement, clearly he, he you know, he knocked out the uh, account that was tracking his private jet pretty quickly, you know, like that free speech was not allowed on the platform. Um, it's just, it's, it's tyranny. That's ultimately his vision as long as he's the one, you know, setting the terms and everything. And it's because that is mimicking the relationships that exist in non-union workplaces where the boss truly controls all the power, controls your work time, controls, you know, how often you use the bathroom, anything like that. Those are all decisions when you don't have protections on uh, the job, then you're at the mercy and, and will of your employer at all times. And that's kind of the ideal, um, form of society i think that elon musk is envisioning and he can call it libertarianism as much as he wants and you know talk about freedom and liberty and things like that but ultimately tyranny is at its core wow that's so true and then it's it's uh they're even clever when so what if a worker uh does not want to pay union dues some of that person has a universal freedom uh, not to pay union dues and not to be obligated to uh support the union uh, and they will go to court to preserve uh, his uh, freedom to uh, not pay union dues. But if another employee wants to form a union, uh, they feel the right to fire them. So it very much is uh, inconsistent. Well, and I should say, like, the part of the reason, that it's not just the labor movement is winning and winning support. It's that the labor movement, when it's at its strongest, is the only real force that can confront capital and organized capital. And right now, both major political parties are completely dominated by, you know, corporate interests um, wholesale. And the only real route towards changing that relationship and that dynamic is to build a stronger and more powerful labor movement full of more people. And that's this is no secret, right? This has been played out throughout um, generations. And so that's the fear, right? Is that if they, if, if some of these millions of people who want to form a union start to unionize, if we start to see an uptick in union density, that will translate into political power. And we know that that political power moves in a progressive direction because it evens the playing field and, and seeks redistribution of wealth and power and resources and adds rights to, um, to to workers, which is the exact opposite of what all these bosses and billionaires ultimately want. So I think that's at the core of why this is, you know, this has been the, the cause that they've taken up is to kneecap um, labor before it can start to reap some of the the benefits were, that, that are clearly available um, because of this upsurge in interest and support for unions. Yeah, and you pointed out before we went on the mic uh, that even though uh, the number of uh, work sites where people want to uh, organize a union is going up or the, the public opinion show that unions never been more popular, uh, the actual number uh, percentage of labor workers who are unionized in the workforce is either I can't remember if you said it's going down or staying the same. Uh, so the tactics of Elon Musk and uh, Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos, et cetera, and so forth seem to be working. You know, they're ferocious uh, and Starbucks throw them in there. Uh, they're fer ferocious counterattack. Uh, their refusal to uh, acknowledge uh, a 
an election in which the workers vote to unionize, uh, their refusal to negotiate in good faith, now their attempt to overturn the New Deal that gave collective bargaining rights uh, to workers. Uh, Like they're in it for the long haul, Miles, uh, and they're determined to win this fight. It's true. And yeah, you're right. They act, the last year, the union density went down from 10.1% to 10%, which is clearly not a trend that can continue if labor movement is going to survive, let alone grow. And they'll need to, you know, organize, I think it's about a million new workers just to like stay even within that range. Um, many, many millions more will need to be organized if the labor movement is going to grow. And we shouldn't let unions off the hook when it comes to this either because i mean this clearly like there's tinder that can be set ablaze if there was resources real resources put in to organizing these workers and the major unions have just not stepped up and you know put their uh you know, resources into that effort to organize all these workers that want to be organized. And so that's what's going to be required. There's some projects, there's the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, um, which is a project of uh, DSA, the Democratic Socialists and the uh, United Electrical Workers. And that seeks to help out, you know, people that want to form unions in their shops. Um, But it's small scale, you know, it doesn't have tons of resources. The places like and, and the UAW actually just uh, announced a major effort, a multi-million dollar effort to organize non-union auto workers um, at plants across the country, which is, these are, you know, good developments, but we need to see it rapidly scale up in places like the AFL-CIO and other major uh, unions need to, you know, put some significant resources into this because that's the only way you're going to battle back against all the hindrances that are being put up by these corporate actors is if you have um, the scale to match it. And so, yeah, I think that it's important to point out both the limitations that are in place with our current labor law regime, but also the lack of like real investment that, that, that has happened. Sarah Nelson, for example, the president of the flight attendants union, who's been a huge, you know, progressive champion. She said she wanted to start something called like 1-800-UNION, basically like a new uh, resource for workers so that anybody who wants to start a union at their workplace has an immediate place they can go to, to get support, resources, advice, um, backing. And we just don't have an institutional vehicle like that right now for workers um, to turn to. The NLRB, you know, is in this role of, um, you know, carrying out the NLRA, but it, it that's not its role to, you know, help workers who want a union. We need something of that scale, I think, if we're going to see an actual growth in the union density in this country. All right. So let me deal with it. what some of the, what I think are foolish things that unions themselves are doing get your response. I talked to you about this before we went on the mic. The Teamsters are playing footsie with Donald Trump. And I look at this from the outside uh, and I listen to the rhetoric and uh, it's, it reminds me so much of uh, <laughs> people in the city of Chicago where they talk and then you got to understand how the game is played, man. You got to be on every, you, you can't just be in one camp. You have to be in both camps. So you have to establish a foothold in Donald Trump. I mean, I've heard Chicago. It's talk forever. I know. So like when I hear the teamsters talking, well, you sound like every dumbass Chicago and I've ever talked to since 1981. Uh, and so I say, I'm like, do you realize you giving $45,000 to the Republican Party, which they gave $45,000, the Teamsters did. They, they took your union dues and gave it to the Republican Party. And you opposing with Donnie Trump, uh, which like he is now going to co-opt your union to a certain degree, like the working people are with me. You realize this man is going to get rid of the National Labor Relations Board. Like, you realize he's going to put judges in there that are going to gut them. 
you realize that you're like slicing your own throat. And so it's like me frustrated, Miles. Like I get frustrated with the Democratic Party all the time on a host of issues. They didn't listen to Bernie and healthcare. The dumbest thing. Like, don't get me started. All right, I'll start railing and ranting. They're about to give Jerry Reinsdorf billion dollars he doesn't need. Okay, okay, I'm gonna stop. So I'm always frustrated with the Democratic Party. But Miles, it'd be freaking suicide for me to support the Republicans. They're like <laughs> the worst. They offer a lefty like me nothing. Absolutely. To support them is just slicing up. It's just like, I can't even articulate it. It's, it's so preposterous. It makes no sense. It's like you're shooting yourself in the foot and the head at the same time. So I do not understand the strategy that the Teamsters are employing. It's like nihilistic, actually. It's like nothing matters. We're just going to throw our money away on a guy who's going to destroy us. Help me understand if you can if you can't just raise the white flag go bet i can't explain the teachers union go ahead the floor is yours well yeah i i kind of can't explain it i mean i don't i don't think that there's a a explanation other than what you offered which is that you know it's there's a likely chance that donald trump will be the next president and therefore it's the interest of a union that's going to have to be negotiating with the next administration to have a relationship and Sean O'Brien you know is a new president there and taking meetings is not the same as like showing support um you're right giving 45 G's to the RNC is a different type of move and I guess that that is like the first time they've done that in many years now um they do they have also given tons of money to the Democrats we should say I mean so it's not and they way more money to the to the DNC this year so you know if we're looking at it relatively obviously they're still supporting Democrats much uh, much higher rate but that's still it doesn't explain why you would give money to the RNC. I guess it's just like for the convention, um, not like for campaign stuff, but obviously the convention is a big campaign for the party. So, and it'll be just like a celebration of Trump. So, and you're right, Trump. I mean, we just published an article last week that I encourage folks to read by Jeff Shirky um, called Donald Trump wants to poison the soul of the labor movement. And it kind of lays out both how, if you look at his track record when he was president, um, it was all, you know, promoting union busters and corporate lawyers and anti-labor judges and trying to, um, you know, block overtime pay and opposing increase to the minimum wage. You know, he was an anti-labor president through and through. There's no doubt. And what he's running on now is to, you know, raise tariffs and start, you know, these trade wars uh, with other countries and all efforts that are just going to result in, you know, higher inflation, workers are going to have to pay more. It's going to be, you know, working class people are going to have to pay the price. Uh, And he, his vision of labor movement is all divide and conquer and like, you know, pitting people up against each other rather than solidarity, which is the core of, you know, what the union movement has always been, um, been based around. So there's no doubt that he is a massive threat to, to unions. And I think one of the things that was really troubling to people was not just O'Brien taking a meeting with Trump. It was then allowing doing a photo op with him, which then he shared around, which then people he used to brandish his credentials as like the workers are with me. Um, he even said he's he was like, I know that the union like can't endorse me, but a lot of its members really want me. You know, like he's using this as a way to yeah to to claim some type of uh, 
pro-worker backing. And he like did a speech in front of the Teamsters podium with their insignia on it, where he was spewing this horrible venom about um, immigrants being massive threats and all this horrible discriminatory language. Um, so that stuff, I think, is less defensible because it's like, yeah, you could take a meeting with the guy, but you're giving him a stage as well and an opportunity to kind of claim this stuff. At the end of the day, I don't think there's any chance the Teamsters are going to endorse Trump. So I don't know if, you know, it's I, I think we should be critical where we are, but I don't think that that is on the horizon um, by any means. And for, an, you know, another example, I think people should look at Sean Fain, the UAW president, who has been very clear about where he stands. You know, they he said Donald Trump is a billionaire and a scab and represents everything that we um, as union brothers and sisters and siblings have been fighting against um, for our entire lives. And so the idea of labor supporting him would be completely absurd. And I think that that's a, a sentiment that's shared widely, um, despite these yeah. recent, you know, yeah. news events around the Teamsters. Everybody wants to be a player. Man, I play. I, I got Trump on one phone. I got Biden on the other phone. What's Trump doing, doing for you? going to support the NLRB? It was like my argument with the Fraternal Order of Police, not that they ever listened to me. Like, they supported Trump all these years. I'm like, hey, where's the money coming from Trump to help Chicago police officers? Where's the money coming for Trump for, like, clinics? Like, police officers are depressed. They're dealing with the mental health anguish and stuff like that. Where's the money? Nothing. You got nothing. for. You gave your support to Trump. He gave you nothing in return. You got nothing. It was the worst. You talk about the White Sox being bad? at playing the market and trading players, et cetera, and so forth. They just lost Tim Anders. They got nothing for him. I would say that union activists who think they're getting something for Trump are worse. Yes, I said it, Miles. They're actually worse than the people who run the sports teams in the city of Chicago. Uh, all right. Stop. Remember, I said I was going to cool and calm and not get all agitated. Uh, let's uh, switch things to something um, that uh, you and I were talking about briefly before and in the air, the Michigan primary uh, coming up and the movement um, of Democratic voters uh, not to vote for Joe Biden, to send a message, a larger message to the Democratic Party. And we have had many, many discussions on this show, Miles, not just with you, but a lot of our guests, David Ferris, big believer in this one, uh, about <laughs> replacing Joe Biden as the, um, uh, the nominee. Uh, and then there's many people come on the show and say, don't replace him. So we've had a... a, a robust debate on this uh, on this show monroe anderson don't replace them okay I'm just giving one person who says that uh so what's your thoughts about what's going on in michigan and this larger uh struggle in the democratic party i think what happens uh next tuesday is going to be a real test the first big indicator of the real disappointment and um anger that people feel towards this president and specifically Democrats um, when it comes to his uh, role in this disastrous war that's being carried out on the Palestinian people in Gaza. And, you know, we're, we're passing more and more horrendous milestones every day. It seems, you know, I think it's around three 30,000 um, Palestinians have now been killed in Israel's assault. Uh, they're now moving into Rafa. You know, this is where they've moved or asked for the, basically the entire population of the Gaza Strip to move. This is the southernmost um, city 
that abuts the Egyptian border and you have like over a million people down there. And now Israel's carrying out assaults there where people have nowhere left to go. You're creating, you know, the UN has called it a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, we've had multiple human rights organizations, you know, call it a genocide that's being carried out. And we've just offered unflinching support, our our, our government has here. And, and, of course, massive transfers of weapons and military aid that's allowing for this um, campaign of death to um, to go on. And understandably, the American people are sick of this, and specifically the Democrats are. You know, you look at polls and a majority of Americans say they want an immediate ceasefire, 80% of Democrats do. And in Michigan, there is a large population of Arab Americans, of, of Muslims, um, and of course, of young people. And these are the groups that are like the most uh, outraged at uh, Biden's policy. And so this is where we're going to see whether that's going to translate into, um, you know, the, this primary campaign has largely just been a coronation uh, for Biden. You did see in New Hampshire, there was some effort to write in ceasefire. But Michigan is one of these states, there's others too that are coming up like Michigan or like Minnesota, Colorado that have an uncommitted option just already on the ballot. And so there's a group called um, uh, Listen Michigan or Listen to Michigan um, that has been leading this effort to get people to vote uncommitted as a strategy to voice discontent with this policy. It's also now collided with this other effort going on led by people, it's being voiced by people like Ezra Klein in the New York Times to get Biden himself to actually step aside and make way for a new candidate. I don't think that's, you know, on the on the horizon, but, you know, the, there's 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 lever points and, you know, uh, leverage points in politics where you can really try to make a case and hopefully change the course of action. And I think this is what activists in Michigan are hoping to do um, with this primary is to say, you know, if we can get enough people to say they're uncommitted at this stage in the primary, maybe that can influence the Biden administration to to do something, right? I mean, they have a massive leverage. They can, they're basically funding this war effort. If the U.S. stopped, you know, giving diplomatic cover, stopped giving economic support, certainly stopped giving military support, we could change what's happening um, in, in Gaza. And so this is really an effort to, to make that happen. And it seems to be catching fire. You know, we've seen, there's not public polling on it yet. So we're going to have to wait to see what the outcome is. But if you, you know, there's all these focus groups, you've got all these me media outlets that are in Michigan interviewing people. And um, it seems pretty uh, clear that there's going to be a sizable amount of people that are going to say they're uncommitted. Now, that doesn't mean these are people that are going to go vote for Donald Trump. Just the opposite. It means they're going to they're going to stay home in November, you know, if Biden doesn't change his policies or that they're going to vote for a third party. Right. I mean, the recent Fox News poll should Trump up by five points in, in Michigan. Right. When you have all the candidates on the ballot. And that's now like Biden. Biden looks like he's losing. So these votes are going to be very critical. We know Donald Trump only won by 10,000 votes in Michigan in 2016. So it's going to be a very close race there. And it's a really critical swing state and to get to to basically allow 
you know, the Republicans to take it based on backing a genocidal war that people don't want. It just seems complete like political malpractice from for the Democratic Party to allow that to continue. And so this could really be uh, an opportunity to put some pressure. And I'll say, you know, it's kind of similar to what I think might be one of the legacies of the ceasefire vote here in Chicago and the city council. Not only is that, I think, important as, you know, one of the the, the home to the largest Palestinian population of any um, major city, but also because the DNC is going to be here in August, you know, and the city is on record saying that we, you know, want a ceasefire. And that if that stands in opposition to Biden's uh, position that's going to be an uncomfortable position for him when he's you know here being celebrated uh, in August. So I think these you know the the primary in Michigan will be a big test of um, of where things stand and could have some real geopolitical consequences. Uh, by the way, I just want to say, uh, please, DNC, take the convention to Atlanta. No, please don't come to Chicago. Please, you're not doing us any favors. Uh, that's me speaking, not Miles. All right. Uh, let you mention Ezra Klein. Let's close with that. Uh, Ezra Klein is a, I guess I call him a liberal, but now liberals want to be called progressives. So I, I will call him a progressive. Uh, <laughs> but really, come on, guys. Y'all know progressives are just liberals. Just, they did like Reagan made liberal a bad word. So liberals said, call me a progressive. So, all right, you want to be a progressive, you're a progressive. Uh, and uh, you're a very influential guy among other progressives for the New York Times. Uh, now, he's not talking Gaza when he uh, uh, says that the Democrats uh, should uh, get a new candidate. Uh, his issue seems to be uh, just Biden's general appearance and his age. And um, I have many thoughts on that. But I'd love to hear you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, the whole issue, the Ezra Klein issue with the uh, uh, Joe Biden and other people. He's not the only one that he's just too old. Your thoughts? Well, I think that the American people and certainly Democrats have been uh, offered a great disservice this election because there was no primary at all. Um, I mean, primaries are happening, but Dean Phillips is really the only person now. You know, Marion Williamson has backed out and um, we just don't, you know, we don't have a competitive primary by any means. And that we could have. I mean, you know, when Biden ran in 2020, he said he wanted to be a transitional president um, and really like floated, not running for a second term. And instead, he did, you know, what all incumbents really do. I mean, except for LBJ, I guess, um, and said, I, you know, I'm going to go give it another go. And there, you know, there's some reason for that. He's he is right when he says I'm the only one that's beat Trump. You know, all these Republicans lost to Trump. Hillary lost to Trump. Biden's the only one who, on a national stage, has won an election against Trump. But does that really mean he's the only person that could win an election? Especially now, when you know, when we're seeing clear um, health issues uh, affecting Biden's ability to to campaign. Um, I mean, people see this, right? It's reflected in polls. I know the media, you know, creates narratives that other people then are responding to, but he's the president. Like people see him and, you know, and are, I think are worried for him, right? I think it's a lot, actually, people's response comes out of like compassion and feeling bad for him when we, you know, see him like stumble over words and, you know, mix up names and 
you know, you know, stammer for a while or just, you know, not, not answer for a while. These are things that are, you know, it's hard to see. It's, you know, when you want vitality out of a president to, um, uh, to see taking place, you know, what Ezra Klein says, he's like, oh, Biden's been a great president and he would be a great president, but he's clearly not a great campaigner. We didn't even really get to see Biden campaign in 2020 because it was COVID, right? He was like in the basement doing press conferences and stuff. So (laughs) seriously. And so this year we're going to have to see some version of it. I mean, is he going to be out like, you know, uh, barn raising throughout the country. It's like hard to see that taking place. I don't even can't even imagine there being debates that maybe they just won't do debates. I mean, obviously, Biden was able to avoid debates completely this primary season. Trump just didn't go to the debates. So maybe they'll just both say we don't want to debate. No. Why, why do I do a debate? I don't understand why, why, why have a debate? It makes no sense. Yeah. Um, so, so that might that might just be the future we're left with. But again, this is a massive disservice. Like we should be having people arguing about their vision for the country. This is my like thing. Is like as much as we're going to make it a referendum on Trump, on democracy, on you know these issues of like the American promise and all this stuff. What are what are we going to do? Right? Like, I mean, this is it's just it's it's misguided. I think to avoid offering up any positive vision of what the future can be. And like, if, if it is going to be Biden, you know, he's got to start do, doing some of that. I don't think you're going to get away with just saying, I'm not the other guy, but for me, especially <laughs> yeah. when you're, you know, you're complicit in a horrible war that's going yeah. on um, upon a civilian population. Like it's just not a recipe to, to, to win. I don't think. And that's what is, I think behind a lot of this nervousness about where where things stand, even though the election's still a way out. I hear you, man. I, I have uh, I have absolutely. I just got to close with this. I have absolutely no sympathy to any liberal slash progressive, whatever they want to call themselves. You guys call yourself whatever you want. Who's uh, uh, just tired of Biden? Okay, he's the epitome of a liberal slash progressive. So now you're complaining, uh, and you say, "Well, he's not articulate." You know what? You could have liked the Bernie. He's an old guy but he's got a lot of strength and vigor. I still see Bernie's still speaking the truth. As far as I'm concerned, Miles, he's speaking the truth on Gaza. I don't know if you've been seeing it. He's speaking the truth on healthcare, everything. So, you know, you had your chance. Okay. You didn't want Bernie with, you didn't like Bernie. Okay. And I don't want to hear it. Liberals and progressives. Oh, cause you can't put a sentence together. You guys blindly follow daily, wherever he led you, that man never put a sentence together. Okay, so now you're like all the axle rods of the world who work for daily are like, well, Biden can't talk. <laughs> Where was that concern about articulateness when you were shoving daily down our throat? You, uh, you were too young to remember that, but that was going on when you were in your uh, high school, your middle school years and your high school years. They were shoving daily down our throat. And I give you credit, you and your brother didn't fall for you. More sense than most of the people in the city of Chicago. All right, Miles, before I let you go, um, uh, talk about some of the great articles uh, uh, in these times that you want folks to know about. Go ahead. Definitely. Yeah. Um, we have been, as I mentioned, there's that Jeff Shirky article on uh, Trump's um, labor record. Um, it's a pretty disastrous one. We also published the, the op-ed from the recent print issue about why um, kind of ties together what we were talking together, but talking about today is um a piece on why Gaza is a labor issue and specifically why working people everywhere in the U.S. should not only care about what's going on um, across the world, but also, you know, have have a stake in it. 
Um, and I think pretty clearly lays that out. It's also a really interesting piece I worked on with um, great writer Mindy Isser about um, this plan in New York right now to build social housing, which is kind of, you know, a version of public housing, but publicly owned and publicly financed. It's a really ambitious plan that they've uh, laid out there across New York State that could kind of change some of the dynamics and really threaten the private real estate industry out there um, that would be, you know, both union built and um, energy efficient. So it's a really exciting new kind of progressive plan, a part of an agenda that was just laid out and as a bill in New York state. So definitely encourage people to check that out and uh, yeah, just go to in these times.com. You're going to find some good stuff. Very good. Thank you so much, Miles. Uh, and for coming on the show I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll hold off any comments about the Bulls um, <laughs> till the next time. We did enough sports at the outset. So just so you know, ladies and gentlemen, diehard Bulls fan Miles is. Uh, he should have his head examined. Uh, and uh, and he loves talking basketball as much as I do. But we'll do that next time. All right, Miles? All right, Sounds here. good. All right, that's Miles Conflas. And I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. And I think Miles agree with me when I say, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, if you want to stay in the know on all things Chicago, you want to stay at chicagoreader.com. There's so much there for you. You want to stay updated on music, art, politics, food. There's so much. I can't, I, there's not even time. I can't even mention it all now. But if you want to follow Ben on Instagram, it's at Benny J Show. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow the Ben Jarofsky Show and tell your friends on all your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.